About a year ago, I had the privilege of uh, speaking at Boise State at a seminar in which the relationship of evangelicals to politics was discussed. And in the course of the remarks that I made, I quoted Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 5.12, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? And the point I was trying to make is that, biblically, we are never told to sit in judgment on those who are outside the church. Paul says, those who are outside, God judges. And so I was suggesting that we as evangelicals ought to leave that up to God and uh, work on cleaning up uh, our own household affairs. And there was a woman there who was a a little bit exercised over this because she felt that somebody needs to tell them that they are wrong. And I tried to gently point out to her that we have enough problems in our own uh, churches that that's where really the finger needs to be pointed and where our concentration needs to be. And one of the reasons I feel that way is because that was the same pattern that the Lord observed in His teaching. If you read through the Gospels, you will see that Uh, consistently the harshest words that the Lord uttered were for the conservative spiritual leaders of his day. And in contrast, the softest words he uttered were to the prostitutes and the pimps and the tax gatherers and the swindlers of his day. And I feel one of the things we've done is we've just kind of reversed that order. We've saved uh, our words of judgment for those who are on the outside and we've tolerated in our own midst uh, sins that ought not to go uh, unchallenged. Now, in the passage I want to look at with you today in Matthew 23, I think this is exactly what the Lord does. He turns his piercing gaze on us as conservative uh, believers, and uh, I think we need to consider seriously what uh, he has to say. This discourse in Matthew 23 was the last public discourse of the Lord's life. As you're aware, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are the object or the Uh, The target in this particular discourse were the Lord's most consistent enemies during his ministry. And the confrontation between Jesus and these Jewish religious leaders was now reaching its climax and would shortly culminate in his death. And during this Passion Week, this discourse takes place at the very uh, end of the week, the confrontation between the Pharisees and the scribes had been escalating. And Jesus' last public words, as he taught in the temple precincts here in the presence of the multitudes was to uh, point out to the people the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees. He tells us in verse 2 that that's who he's dealing with, the scribes and the Pharisees. I think one of our tendencies, we've been talking about this in the last couple of weeks, as David has taught through uh, parables in which the scribes and Pharisees figure prominently, is that one of our tendencies is to read these gospel accounts and see the scribes and the Pharisees as the bad guys, the villains of the peace, as those guys. We uh, always think of this as an us and them kind of distinction. We are the us and the scribes and the Pharisees are the them. And we fail to see that the words addressed to them are really addressed uh, to us. I was reminded of this when I read a story about a girl in her Sunday school class in in which they studied the parable we looked at two weeks ago of the Pharisee who stood praying in the temple and uh, said, Lord, I thank you that I am not like this tax gatherer filled with self-righteousness and pride. And after this parable had been studied in the Sunday school class, one of the girls in the class closed the Sunday school class in prayer by praying, Lord, I thank you that I am not like this Pharisee. Obviously missing the whole point of the uh, story. 
But if we look at who these scribes and Pharisees were, we will see that they are really us guys. The scribes were the theologians of Jesus' day. They were the Bible scholars of Jesus' day. It was their business to study the scriptures and to teach it to the people of Israel, to discern what the scriptures taught about life and to impart that uh, to the people. The modern parallel are uh, Bible teachers and preachers and pastors and Bible college teachers and seminary professors and, and theologians. That's the closest modern parallel to the scribes that we will find. People who take the scripture seriously and seek to teach its truth to others. Here at Cole, pastoral staff certainly fits, and those that teach women's Bible studies, and growth groups and so forth, all would be considered scribes. And so the words addressed to them, if we hold any of these positions of teaching the Scripture, are really words addressed to us. Now the Pharisees were the group of people in Israel who had pledged themselves to put into practice what the scribes taught them. They had pledged themselves to allow their whole lives to be governed by what the Scriptures taught. And they were sincere in their efforts to apply in daily life what the scribes taught them out of the Scriptures. And uh, that applies, I think, to almost everyone in this room. That's our desire. Our desire is to understand what the Scriptures teach and to put it into practice, to allow our thinking and our conduct to be shaped by what we find in the Scripture. And yet Jesus saw that in the lives of these scribes and Pharisees, he saw a tendency or a vulnerability to several very significant sins. And he, he puts his finger on those in this little section we're going to study today. These were the sins that the scribes and the Pharisees were the most subject to and were in fact blinded to by their own self-righteousness. And I would suggest that these sins that Jesus describes for us in this paragraph are likewise the sins that those of us in this room are the most likely to commit. These are the sins that we are going to be the most vulnerable to. And therefore, I think our study of this passage can be an opportunity for us to engage in some some self-examination. Jesus says in verses uh, 1 and 2 of Matthew's account starts, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes, that is, those who were gathered there in the temple precincts. It was the time of the Passover, and thousands of Jews from all over the world had come. And they comprised part of his audience there in the temple precincts. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Moses was the original lawgiver in Israel, their first great spiritual teacher. And Jesus says, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, in that culture, uh, teachers taught from a sitting position. That was the position of authority. In our culture, generally, people stand in the classroom, in church, and so forth. Just a cultural difference. So when Jesus talks about them sitting in the chair of Moses, he says they occupy the, the position of authority in teaching. They are the authoritative, authorized teachers of the people, teachers in the religious community. Now, when he says that they have seated themselves in the chair of of Moses, it might appear from that translation that they were there improperly, that they had taken a seat that really did not belong to them. But Jesus immediately goes on to say in verse 3, Therefore, because they are sitting in the chair of Moses, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. So Jesus 
uh, recognized that they held this position of teaching authority properly. He recognized that and acknowledged that. In fact, he tells these this uh, huge audience gathered about him that whatever they tell you to do, whatever they teach you out of the scriptures, as long as it conforms to what you find in the law, do it. Whatever they tell you, do and observe. But immediately he puts his finger on the first great sin that we as evangelicals are vulnerable to, and that is the sin of hypocrisy. He says, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So what Jesus pointed out is the great tendency for those of us to take the scripture seriously is to say things, but not to do them not to practice what we preach. That was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, in most cases, nothing wrong with what they taught. The problem was that they didn't live what they taught. So Jesus says, pattern yourselves after what they say, not what they do. The most uh, uh, common word that Jesus attributed to these scribes and Pharisees was the word hypocrite. And as you're aware, the word hypocrite comes from the Greek stage, the Greek theater, which it was common for actors in the Greek stage to wear a mask to uh, portray the figure and the tragedy or comedy that they were playing. If you've ever seen the, the, uh, the two masks, the happy face and the sad face that are often used in connection with theater arts, that comes from this very practice of the Greek stage. And Jesus says, this is what the Pharisees are like. They wear a mask pretending to be something that underneath they are not. And that's what it means to be a hypocrite, to pretend that we are someone uh, we are not, to pretend that we are holy and righteous and obedient, and yet at the very same time to be nursing secret sins that we hope no one else finds out about and that we have no intention of giving up. I found out uh, just a couple of weeks ago about a very respected leader in the evangelical community, a man who has written books on marriage, whose books I've read, whose tapes I've listened to, and been very helped by in my own uh, marriage. And one of the staff guys was telling me that just a couple of weeks ago he was listening to a tape that this man had done in which he had emphasized over and over to the husbands in the audience, love your wife. Love your wife. Love your wife. Repeated that with hammer-like uh, blows to get his point across. And I found out just a couple of weeks ago that he's uh, taken off, left his wife and family, and taken up with some cute young thing half his age. And Jesus says, that's what we have to watch for. Talking a good line, but not walking it. So we must be concerned that our walk, that our behavior matches the things that we, that we agree to and that we assent to. The test is not whether we agree with the truth, but whether we obey the truth. Mark Fisher pointed out in our uh, growth group leaders uh, meeting last Sunday that he has on a number of occasions seen cars driving around with a radar detector on the front dashboard and a bumper sticker on the rear bumper that says, Jesus, the only way to fly. And uh, it struck all of us of how incongruous those two things are. And so uh, what Jesus is saying here is we must be careful that we, each of us, uh, present in this room today, is pledged not just to agree with the truth of the Scripture, 
but to put it into practice and allow the Scriptures to uh, judge us and determine how we live. Now, I want to make it clear that uh, Jesus is not talking about perfection here. Uh, To sin is not to be a hypocrite. To sin and not admit it is to be a hypocrite. That the mark of one who is righteous and hungers for righteousness is that when we do sin, we are willing to acknowledge it, to fess up, to confess it, not to paper it over, not to justify it, not to make excuses for it, but simply to call it what God calls it and own up to it. Now, this little verse, I think, can be of help to us if we're ever in a church situation where we are being taught by someone whose lifestyle we cannot respect. I think these words are very, very telling to us. Jesus says, do uh, all that they tell you and observe. So we are to have a respect for the message that a man like this brings, although we may not have respect for the man himself. So that's the first great sin then, that we must watch for, is the sin of hypocrisy. Now the second great sin, I believe, in verse, verse 4a is the sin of legalism. Jesus says about these teachers, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. They tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. And the picture is of the uh, saints gathered around these uh, scribes and Pharisees, and they are uh, wearing backpacks, and the scribes are loading uh, more and more packages, heavier and heavier burdens into this backpack until the people around them are sagging under the weight. Remember uh, when I was backpacking in the Sawtooths uh, several years ago, we were on our way out and coming in the same, we passed them on the trail, were a group of kids from the uh, local Y, about a dozen of them or so, and we passed ten of them in one happy group, and bringing up the rear was one poor, uh, forlorn uh, child It was raining and he had an inadequate poncho, and he had this monstrous backpack on. And his parents, uh, ignoring the instructions they'd been given, had loaded him down with a lot of canned goods. And you know how heavy they are. And you know, if you backpack, you travel uh, light. And this poor uh, 11-year-old boy was just in tears and struggling up the steep part of this trail with this heavy pack on his shoulders. Now, Jesus says that we as evangelicals, I think, have the tendency to do the same thing to our people. The tendency in conservative circles is to kind of load people down with the weight of responsibility. And often in churches, people are lashed and harassed and harangued. And guilt is the tool that is used by the teacher to uh, to motivate them. And they are hammered with their responsibility and the long list of do's and don'ts are in, and are exhorted and uh, challenged and, uh, and driven. Uh, whereas uh, uh, those of you that have ever worked with sheep know that sheep must be led and, uh, and not driven. So legalism is a way of tying heavy loads on men's shoulders, making out of the Christian life a, uh, a list of rules that must be obeyed and turning the Christian life into simply a list of regulations and rules that must be must be observed, uh, rather than it being a living relationship in which God is able to direct and guide us out of that. The Christian life is actually fairly uh, simple. It's not a matter of a heavy load at all. Uh, Jesus, or or rather Augustine said in about the 5th century, he said there is a simple rule that every believer can follow. That is to love God and do what you want. 
Love God and do what you want. Christian life, in essence, is that simple. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 11, and Sue Ellen sang from the Messiah these very words this morning, where Jesus said to people, uh, Take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy, and my load, my burden, the same word that he uses here, my load is light, that I'm there to help you bear this load. My load is not burdensome. It doesn't weigh people down. Now that, by the way, I think is a useful test that we can apply to to Bible teaching. Uh, One useful test to apply is what I call the load test. When you walk into a situation where the scriptures are taught, do you walk out with a load that is heavier than you had when you came in, or a load which is lighter? I think what Jesus is suggesting as a mark of the correct use of the scriptures is that the load that people bear is lightened. It's not made heavier, but, but it's lightened, and they walk out with a sense of encouragement and, uh, and hope. I think uh, the, what compounds this in the evangelical church, and I speak from some bitter experience on this regard, is the, what tends to be the complete absence of teaching on resource in the evangelical church that uh, we are very good at telling people how they ought to live and what their lives ought to look like. But we are not good at telling them how they can do it. We're good at telling them what, but not how. Remember, when I grew up, the pastors in the churches I grew up were good Bible teachers and did a good job of laying out for us as a congregation the specifications of the Christian life, what it looked like, in action, what Christ-likeness looked like. And I wanted to be like that. I wanted to be like Jesus. But as far as I can tell, none of them told me that the power source for this was to come from outside myself. So I spent the great majority of my uh, youth and adolescence trying my best, bringing all of my resources and my willpower to bear on becoming like Christ, only to find that I was a miserable failure at it. And the load and the burden and the guilt just increased. And I think what what God wants us to understand is that Jesus is the one who offers to take up residence in us, to live out again in us the same life that he lived on earth 2,000 years ago, and to impart to us his strength and his love and his capacity so that we can do what what we want to do. But that's what Jesus said, is that one of the sins that we can fall into is simply loading people down with a long list of responsibilities without ever telling them where the resource comes from to put this into practice. And by the way, this load test can be a useful test to apply to each of us personally in our own relationships with people. When people have had contact with us, serious, meaningful contact with us, do they walk away from that encounter with us with a load that is lighter or a load that is heavier than, than when they came to us in the first place. So this is what we must be careful to do, is to not load men down with heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. Now, the third sin that Jesus points out, I believe, is in the end of verse 4. They tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. That is, these scribes and Pharisees would lay their listeners down with a heavy load and then not move so much as a finger to help them carry this load that they had laid on their shoulders. This is what I would call the sin of indifference 
or coldness. And I think this likewise can easily characterize us as evangelicals. We can simply tell people what they ought to do. We can tell them they need to get their act together and start obeying and start cooking. And then yet be unwilling to move alongside them and give them the resources and the encouragement and the prayer and the support that will help them to do what the scriptures ask them to do. We can tell them what to do and then leave them to struggle with this burden of obedience uh, on their own. I read an article this past week. Both Debbie and I were very sobered by it in Time Magazine on uh, teenage pregnancies. Uh, exploding rate of teenage pregnancies. The worst teenage pregnancy rate in the Western world by far is in the United States. Several times the rate in, in Europe. And often when these teenage women become pregnant, the, uh, the most attractive alternative is abortion. And yet we as evangelicals rightly believe and rightly understand, I think, that that is a tragedy to terminate an innocent uh, life, an innocent unborn life. And it is one of the things that we can, we can contribute to society is this respect for unborn human life. But I think one of the things we must be careful to do is if we encourage a woman to, uh, to carry her pregnancy to term, that we, we must be willing to help her shoulder that load and to bear it and to give her the financial and material and emotional and spiritual resources that she needs to carry it out and to see this, uh, see this thing through because it is an ordeal and there's shame and humiliation and inconvenience involved. We must be willing not simply to be cold and aloof and distant from people who struggle with the things that we ask them to do, but to move alongside and help them to bear their burdens, as Paul says in Galatians 6. Now, the fourth great sin, I believe, is found in verses 5 through 10, and that is our vulnerability to love and prize honor and attention and recognition. Now, there are three manifestations of it that Jesus points out. The first manifestation of this love of attention is seeking to impress people with our spirituality. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. So Jesus said that one of the marks of the spiritual life of these uh, scribes and Pharisees is that they, the main thing they were concerned about in doing spiritual things is not whether God noticed them, but whether people uh, noticed them and made an effort to impress people around them with how spiritual they really were. Now, the evidence that Jesus gives for it, he says, is that they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. Every good Jew at the time of morning prayer would wear phylacteries. A phylactery was a little leather box that had parchment contained in it on which were written various passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. And when a good Jewish male went to the time of morning prayer, he would take his phylacteries with him and he would strap one phylactery on the inside of his left arm and then another phylactery, another little leather box on his forehead and tie it off on the back of his head. And then as he went through the time of morning prayer, he would wear uh, these phylacteries. The tassels were tassels that the Jewish uh, males were commanded to wear in the Old Testament. They were tassels that were attached to the hem of the outer cloak or outer garment. And Moses tells them that every time they, were, they saw these tassels, they were to remind themselves that they were people of the law. 
people who had pledged themselves to obey God's word. Now, Jesus doesn't condemn these scribes and Pharisees for wearing them. Jesus himself probably wore phylacteries and wore tassels. Uh, Remember when the woman with the uh, hemorrhage, who had hemorrhaged for 12 years, when she came to Jesus, she tugged on the fringe or the tassels of his cloak. So he himself wore these in obedience to the law. But what Jesus pointed out is these scribes and Pharisees broadened their phylacteries and lengthened their tassels so that these little leather boxes, instead of being simple affairs, became ornamented and gaudy and larger and attention-getting devices. And the same with tassels. Instead of being a simple expression of a desire to obey, they became lengthened and made uh, brighter and more colorful so that they would attract the attention of people and impress them with how spiritual and dedicated they are. And we need to be careful about doing the same thing, about buying big leather Bibles just so people will be impressed, or putting bumper stickers on our car if the motive is simply to impress people with our dedication, or dropping casual hints into conversation to let people know how spiritual we are. came across a quote which I think uh, describes this mentality that we so often fall into very well. He says, here is where we struggle, isn't it? We want the power of God, but we want to get credit for it too. If God does anything through us, we want to be sure we get a write-up in Christianity today. If anything happens in our midst, in our home, in our family, we want it to be known that we spent a lot of hours in prayer over it, that we had counseled so-and-so in such-and-such a helpful way. We want to move in and get the credit Every time. Now, the second manifestation of this is found in verses 6 and 7, and this is the love of the attention or the honor of men. Jesus says they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. What he points out is that these men loved this. They loved these prominent positions and prominent seats where they were the focus of attention. And this is where their strokes and affirmation came from. This is what boosted their ego and gave them a sense of importance. The the chief seat at the place of honor to banquet would be right next to the host. Remember when Prince Charles and Lady Diana were here, there was a big... Uh, consternation in Washington over who was on the A list and the B list. If you were on the B list, you were out. You didn't get to go to the polo matches and stuff. And there can be in the Christian uh, world the same kind of desire to be on the A list, to be sort of on the in crowd and be seen with the right people. The chief seats in the synagogues were the seats in the front of the synagogue, and those who sat on these front seats would be facing the audience. And again, it was a position where every eye in the synagogue was focused on them. And the problem that Jesus points out is not that they sat there, but that they loved it. They ate it up. This is where they got their affirmation and sense of importance. And that's where we need to be very, very careful. Uh, When Debbie and I got married at our rehearsal dinner, for some reason, I forget exactly why, we had three uh, pastors at our, our rehearsal. Maybe they felt we needed all the help we could get or something. Uh, but one of, one of the pastors that was at our rehearsal dinner uh, was the most highly educated of the three. He had 12 years of theological education, had an earned doctorate uh, to his name, and was the pastor of a large church there in the, in the Bay Area. And through some um, 
I wasn't really paying attention to this, but I wound up seating him at probably the least honorable seat in the entire room. There were, say, 30 people there or so, and he was seated off in a corner at the foot of one table. And the other pastors were seated at the front uh, table to the right and the left of the bride and bridegroom-to-be. Uh, and uh, I didn't really think about it later, but when I realized what I'd done to this man, I really felt, I felt terrible that I hadn't given him the honor or the respect and felt perhaps he felt slighted. And I discovered, to my pleasant surprise, that he wasn't miffed, he wasn't uh, put out, he, his feelings weren't hurt, he wasn't upset that he hadn't been given the prominence or attention that a man of his stature uh, deserved. And it struck me that that's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. That's what we're to be like, instead of prizing this and, and uh, seeking it and wallowing in it. Now, the third manifestation that Jesus points out in verses 8 through 10 is that the scribes and Pharisees loved titles. They not only loved places of prominence, they loved titles. But do not be called rabbi, verse 8, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Now Jesus says when it comes to titles in the evangelical community, and now remember Jesus is talking about the use of titles in the church, not on the outside, so let's restrict our discussion to use of titles in the community of believers, Jesus says there's two things you have to watch for. One is you need to be careful about the titles that you ask people to use with you. That's in verses 8 and 10. And then secondly, he says you must be very careful about the titles that you use with other people in verse 9. It says in verse 8, do not be called rabbi. Rabbi was a term of great respect and honor in that culture. It was reserved for outstanding teachers of the law. It was a term of great respect. Jesus himself was often called rabbi. But Jesus says to his disciples, do not be called rabbi. In verse 10, do not be called leaders. In other words, don't allow people to use these kinds of titles with you. Don't encourage that. Don't foster that. Don't insist that they address you by the title that you feel you properly deserve. That's why when uh, Dave Roper came here to Cole several years ago, he politely and courteously, and it's important that we do it this way, he politely asked people to refrain from addressing him as Pastor Dave. Don't let people do that to you. I think what Jesus is recognizing is that titles eventually will get to us. They'll get to our heads, and they'll begin to convince us that, yes, we are indeed a cut above the great unwashed mass of humanity. So he says, don't, don't let people do that to you. Don't let people put you on that kind of a pedestal and use a title to elevate you above others. You must be very careful to do that. I had this humorously, how silly this really is. You know, I don't know why we get away with this in the uh, evangelical church when nobody does it in any other realm of life. Chris Riddell was telling me this week that he and Ben Tyson were at a meeting together. And a man came up to them. Ben works for Hewlett Packard. A man came up to them and introduced himself and said, Hi, I'm Pastor uh, Herman Schmatzkoff, or whatever. And uh, after their conversation, after this man had left, Ben turned to Chris and said, Hi, I'm Engineer Ben. You know? 
you realize how silly this use of titles in the community really is. And Jesus says, if you are someone that normally has this title given to you, encourage people to stop using it. Now, he gives two reasons for this. He says, first of all, in verse 8, you are all brothers. And that's emphatic. You, all of you, are just brothers. That everybody in the kingdom stands on the same plane. There isn't a single believer who is superior to another or ought to be elevated above another. Because Jesus says there is one teacher, which is a synonym for the term rabbi. There's one teacher, and that's Jesus himself. There's only one teacher. And all of us are just brothers. All of us are just instruments that the, that the physician uses. When a physician uses a scalpel to perform a surgery which may save a life, the honor goes to the physician, not to the instrument. And that's what Jesus is saying here. We're all just brothers, all just instruments that the master uses. And if there's any honor or attention or glory that is attributed in the body, it ought to go right to the one who's responsible, to the teacher, to the master. Now, how can you tell when you've sort of given in to this... Um, this uh, temptation to elevate people and put them on a pedestal. Well, I think you can tell any time you get nervous around some Christian leader. If you're nervous, you're tongue-tied, you're afraid about what to do or what to say, then it's an indication that you've elevated them. They're not just a uh, brother. Think of how you treat your brothers or sisters, your natural brothers or sisters, the same sort of familiarity and, and at homeness we should be able to feel with any other member of the body. The way Howard Smith illustrated it in our growth group this week was to ask yourself how you would uh, react if Billy Graham came to your house for dinner one night. Uh, how comfortable or tongue-tied or nervous would you be? Well, he's just a brother, uh, just like everyone else. I read a story about a tailor who uh, had a private audience with the uh, Pope, and when he got back, his colleagues were just abuzz with excitement and they, they immediately bombarded him with the question, tell me, what is the Pope like? And he said, oh, he's a 39 short. You know? And uh, I thought that was, uh, it captured it. You know, he's just a guy that needs a, a sport coat that fits just like everybody else, just a brother. And so we're all brothers, none of us to be elevated above another. Now, the second reason he says we're not to allow people to use titles with us is that there is only one leader in verse 10. I think Jesus is talking here about authority. There is only one real authority figure in the church, and that is Christ. That's the Messiah. He is the authority. He is the leader. And that's why Jesus could properly accept the title rabbi, and no one else could, because he was the one to whom it rightly applied. But Jesus says there's only one Lord and authority in the church, and that is Christ. I'm constantly amazed when I... Uh, come across churches in which pastors are given almost dictatorial power over their congregations. And people look to them as the authority for every decision in life. And there, there are even fellowships where uh, you must get approval from the uh, pastor or the elders in order to marry someone or to change jobs. And they exercise kind of a, a total control over the lives of people. But Jesus says, no, there's only one leader. There's only one person in life that has that kind of authority in your life, and that's Christ. Now, others around you may help you discern what his will is, but he's your Lord. He's your master. No one else has that kind of authority in life. And so we must be careful not to insist that people attribute to us a title 
that gives us that kind of status. And I think you can tell when you, uh, those of you that don't have titles, you know, David had to stop people from calling him pastor. I've never had that problem. I usually have to try to get people to stop calling me other things. But uh, <laughs> if you're not normally one who is given a title, uh, how can you tell if you're sort of in violation of what the Lord says here? Well, I think we can tell if we get miffed or bent out of shape or upset or angry because we are not getting the attention or the respect or the recognition that we feel uh, we deserve. Uh, self-pity really is a reverse of this. Uh, self-pity is just a reverse pride in which I feel hurt because other people didn't do things my way and didn't allow me to, didn't allow my plans to be adopted and put into practice. You may have a perfectly good plan for a family outing, for instance, and it all comes a cropper because the family's unenthused and Begin to feel sorry for yourself. No, no one appreciates me. No one respects me. Well, that's an indication that we have, we've elevated ourselves and we're seeking the kind of respect that Jesus says properly belongs only to Christ. We've had people who have left uh, coal because they did not feel that we were quick enough to perceive their true greatness in the kingdom and recognize how gifted they were and elevate them immediately to a position of, of great prominence. And so... Jesus says we must be very careful about thinking along these lines. Now, he also says in verse 9, we must be careful not just about the titles we have people call us, but about the titles we call others. He says, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. So Jesus says, don't use these titles on other people. Don't have people use them on you, and don't use them on other people. Now, I must confess that I'm a bit of a quandary about how literally uh, to take this. Um, um, And I don't know. I'm ambivalent. And I ask you to think along with me uh, about how literally we should do this. Should we refuse to call people uh, pastor or reverend or uh, preacher or father, as the case may be? Well, that seems to be what the Lord is saying. So I leave you to wrestle with that. The important thing, however, is that whatever we do in this area, we must be courteous polite. We never ought to not use a title on someone just to be ornery or rebellious or to get under their skin or uh, to prod them or poke them. We always ought to be polite in whatever form of address we use. And it may be that the point of this is Jesus is concerned only about the heart and that it may be permissible for us to use these terms as, as titles of respect. But if we do use these terms as titles of respect, we ought to realize when we do that that this does not elevate them, that they're just a brother. Uh, like everyone else. So this is the thing we need to we need to watch for, is this tendency to elevate ourselves. Now these seems to be the four sins then that Jesus focuses on that all of us must be, must be careful of. We must watch for the sin of hypocrisy and for the sin of legalism and for the sin of indifference and coldness and then for this love of attention and honor. And Jesus says in verse 11, there's a, a simple, a great alternative to this hunger and thirst for attention. That is, he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. You're aware immediately of how it contrasts with the way the world operates this is. In the world, status is a function of how many people report to you, how many people call you boss, how many people serve you in the marketplace. And uh, We betray this even in our conversations. If we're first getting to know someone, we always... 
ask sort of probing questions to, as kindly as we can, find out where they fit kind of on the pecking order in their particular company because status in the world is measured in those terms. But Jesus says in the body it's exactly the reverse, that greatness is not measured by the number of people that serve me, but by the number of people whom I serve. Greatness is measured by servanthood, not by leadership in the body. Now, if we really understood that, if we took that seriously, if we took it to heart and meant it, it would make a radical difference in the way we approach uh, ministry. The word servant was originally used just for table waiters. I used to do this for a living. It's how I got myself through uh, seminary. And I've worked with some very skilled uh, table waiters, some skilled servants, one in particular I remember, who... uh, was extremely smooth. He could spot a need at his table and instantly move to meet it, whether it was a refilled water glass or cleaning breadcrumbs off the table or refilling a wine glass or taking away an empty plate. He instantly saw what needed to be done and moved immediately to do it. And the mark of his greatness was that he did it invisibly. He never intruded into a conversation. He never interfered with what was taking place at the table. In fact, he felt himself the most successful when he was the least noticed. And that's sort of what the Lord is saying to us here. The measure of greatness in the kingdom is the willingness simply to serve people around us regardless of whether it gets any attention, regardless of whether we get credit for it, whether we're noticed for it, whether we're complimented for it, whether we're written up in the cold communique or the bulletin or the religion page of the statesman to just quietly go about the business of recognizing needs and simply bringing whatever resources we have to bear to meet that need, quietly and unobtrusively and simply. Some of you may have ministries like this, where you minister in unseen ways, visiting convalescents or shut-ins or those who are sick. Possibly you're a mother of young children, and your ministry right now is primarily to serve and shape these little lives in your home and to minister to the needs of your family. Maybe even your husband doesn't appreciate you and give you the recognition for the valuable ministry this is. And maybe others around you do not give this ministry the proper respect that it ought to have. Jesus says that doesn't matter, shouldn't matter. Our responsibility is to simply quietly serve the people around us. There are many people in this fellowship who have a ministry, a very quiet ministry of one-on-one encouragement on the phone or meeting people for coffee or for breakfast or for lunch simply to find out how they are doing and to minister words of encouragement uh, to them. All of these quiet, unseen things that go on that no one will ever find out about, no one will ever give you credit for, it'll never show up on Idaho at 5 because these kinds of things just don't often get attention of people. I uh, was down here yesterday uh, just doing some things in the afternoon, and I found uh, Bob and Judy Johnstone in here slaving away in the print room. They'd been there since 9.30 in the morning and wouldn't leave, it turns out, until 9.30 at night. And what they were doing was printing up copies of the material uh, that Claude Levitt had translated for the trios and printing up portions of the scripture that the trios have never had in their own language before, giving them the word of God for the first time, an incredibly important uh, ministry, an extremely beneficial service to the kingdom and to the cause of Christ. Well, if I just hadn't happened to be down here, I wouldn't have known about it. None of you would have known about it. 
They're not interested in attention or honor or recognition, just quietly taking a day off with their whole family to serve, uh, to meet a need. And Jesus says that's the, that's the dynamism that ought to activate us, simply to serve whether or not we get credit for it. I uh, read stories to my kids, as most of you do or have done or will do. It's Christmas time right now, and one of the stories that I read to my kids just last night, as a matter of fact, is called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Shines Again. And this, uh, this takes place the year after. Uh, this was uh, the second Christmas, and of course, Rudolph had made a big splash the Christmas before, had a song written about him. You know, the other guy just got a poem. He got a song. And uh, the other reindeer in the subsequent year got very jealous of the attention and notoriety that he had gained the previous year, and they kind of shut him out. And Rudolph began to feel very sorry for himself that he was no longer the center of attention. And he wandered off uh, one night in a fit of self-pity. And uh, he even noticed in his reflection in the mirror that his nose had stopped glowing. The glow in his nose had gone out. And uh, he came across this little rabbit family, and their two little rabbits were missing. And this sparked something in Rudolph, and he was determined to do whatever he could to get these two little baby rabbits back to their parents. And he couldn't see very well because his nose was out, and so he was crashing into trees and stumbling and tripping. But he gave it his best shot and was able to locate these two little bunnies, and he led the wolves away. He was able to outrun them and lead them away from the little rabbits, and he saved the lives of these little rabbits and put this family back together. And uh, he uh, began to realize that uh, even though he may not be the center of attention anymore, he could still be useful, and he could even be useful to Santa. So he started to head back to Toyland, and as he headed back to Toyland to serve Santa in any way that... Santa needed him, whether it was to lead the sleigh again or not, he realized that the, his nose began to glow again. And uh, he, uh, the sense of joy and life uh, came back to him. And I thought that's a simple little children's story, but it illustrates perfectly what Jesus is saying to us here, just to, what brings joy and light to life is simply being willing to serve people around us, whether or not we get attention for it. The song, I'm going to have David come up in just a second and, and lead us in another chorus that Make Me a Servant a chorus that we sang right before I came up to teach. And uh, this little song is from a children's musical, Make Me a Servant. And it's a story about this little mouse who was on her way to Hollywood to become a gospel singing star. And uh, she runs into this little church mouse choir in this little out-of-the-way church on her way to Hollywood. And uh, the church mouse uh, choir asks her to stay and be their leader. But she says, no, I don't have time for that. I'm on my way to Hollywood to be a gospel singing star. You know, I don't have time for a little church mouse choir. And through the course of events, uh, she has taught a great lesson about humility and servanthood. And the, uh, the lesson that she learns is, is encapsulated in the song, Lord, make me a servant. And she decided to stay right there and be the leader of the little church mouse choir and give up this dream of Christian celebrity. So what I'd like to have you do as Dave has come up, we'll, we'll sing this uh, song together. And I would like you to sing it as an expression of your own uh, heart, that your desire is for the Lord to make you a servant. Jesus says in verse 12, if we exalt ourselves, we'll be humbled. That if we seek honor, attention, prominence, recognition, that the Lord will have to humble us sometimes in very humiliating ways. But if we humble ourselves, if we're willing simply to serve where we're placed in quiet, unobtrusive ways, 
The Lord will exalt us. He will expand the borders of our ministry, and he will give us the recognition uh, that he deems appropriate in his time.